Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of your favorite podcast, Ranching Reboot. This is episode 94, and I'm your host, Brian Alexander, sometimes known as Red Hills Rancher. On this podcast, we talk to some of the most innovative farmers and ranchers, and we're going to reboot your thinking about land stewardship and food systems. This episode is sponsored by our amazing patrons on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. You can join them and check out all the sweet merch rewards by clicking the link in the show notes. Be sure to drop by and check out our Facebook group, Ranching Reboot Paddock. You know what? Speaking of Facebook and social media in general, I don't want to rely too much on any platform anymore. So over the holidays, I'm going to be working on my website to launch after the first of the year. In the meantime, I have a Discord server set up. Discord is both a mobile app and an app for your desktop or laptop. It's a place for fans of the podcast to spend time together. It's easy to use, and I'm there a lot chatting with fans. Discord allows me to share my screen, and I've been streaming my editing and recording sessions. For about a month now, I've been jumping into Discord voice channel and chatting with my new friends from about 6 p.m. Central Time till about 8 or so. You can come join the conversation, check the Ranching Reboot Paddock Facebook group for a link, or email me at redhillsrancher at gmail.com with Discord in the subject line, and I'll send you a link. This episode also sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links are my new favorite meat snack. Simple and clean ingredients, gluten-free, no grains, hormones, or antibiotics or dyes. Naturally preserved by fermentation, no nitrates, corn syrup, or liquid smoke. Bobolinks are tangy and delicious, individually wrapped for maximum freshness. I keep one in my pocket for a healthy midday snack while I'm on the ranch. Try Bobolinks today. Check the show notes for a link and use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first package. All right, crew, I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on the podcast, we are joined through the magic of the inner tubes by a fan that reached out to me several months ago. And just over a month ago at the Regenerate Conference in Denver, I met Jared Kirst, who in his own words is a recovering sod farmer paying the penance for all his glyphosate use by rehabilitating the soil on his farm, focusing on soil health, and building a thriving grass-fed beef business. 
Well, good morning, Jared Kirst. Welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you, buddy? Morning, Brian. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's uh, I appreciate you doing this. And this isn't one of our normal ones, is it? You're kind of uh, you're kind of new to this whole regenerative stuff, aren't you? Yeah, you know, new um, because I started the journey, uh, 2010 timeframe, but I was a real slow learner, Brian. <laughs> it took it took a long time. My first attempt out of the gate at soil health. Uh, rejuvenation was probably the word I would have used at the time. Started with uh, Roundup Ready Alfalfa. You know, I told you I was a sod farmer, turf grass. Right. I, and I, I'm and curious, that's real extractive. I think we're going to have to get back to how rejuvenating the land with Roundup Ready Alfalfa, how, how that kind of squared, but go on. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually got into farming in general uh, from sort of non-farming side. I, I graduated uh, from college with a business degree and uh, floundered around and became the office manager at this sod farm. Okay. Rivendell Sod Farm here in Glenwood Springs. And there was a farm manager at the time uh, who was a part owner and the whole operation had been started by a doctor and his wife. The wife was actually the business owner, manager, and uh, it was a funding mechanism for their nonprofit hospital in Mexico. And they had started growing sod with the concept of maximizing per acre per acre yield, essentially. So they could fund um, their hospital in Mexico with the profit. Correct, nonprofit mission hospital, which gave me kind of this. Um, in with the nonprofit and the idea that it was it was not just greed that I was going after. Very idealistic. I was out of college, but I slipped pretty quickly into recognizing that yeah, there was there was money to be made in sod, but we only had 130 acres or so of irritable ground on the farm. Okay. Uh, the rest was sagebrush. Where are you? So we're in between Glenwood Springs and Carbondale, Colorado, up in the mountains. Okay. The the farm is 7,000 feet in elevation, which presents its own unique challenges and uh, opportunities like anything. And the, the water is really good. Uh, spring water year-round fed uh, produces most of the water for the farm. Okay. So we, you know, we were in this little niche close to Vail and Aspen. That was the market for the sod. Um, now we're trying to make it the market for grass finished beef, but, but that's the situation we find ourselves in. And, um, when we tried to expand the business, the only thing we could do is add on sales, uh, because the acres were, were limited. So Macy, the owner had started a distribution business selling landscape supplies, fertilizer, seed, chemicals, um, ironically, you know, lots of chemicals and fertilizer. To go with the sod, you know, we sold some new, uh, farmers and ranchers in the area, but largely landscape, right? What I call aesthetic agriculture on that side. Right. So, um, we were selling as much sod as we could sell. Uh, and I, I was only a farmer in the sense that I was ordering fertilizer, directing seed and planting uh, once the, the farm manager had left. 
I took over general manager of the place in about 2001. And uh, the owners left also to go down to Mexico to run their, their hospital. So I was sort of left to grow the business and manage it. Um, and during that period, the lead up to the, the peak of business in 2007, right? The right before the crash okay. in the market, we were selling a lot of sod. Uh, you know, out of the 130 acres that I had in production at the time, we would actually put onto a pallet, a rolled up piece of sod onto a pallet, of, about uh, 77 acres of sod, which, you know, was pushing it. We were dumping NPK on the fields. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, 77 acres to make one pallet of sod. Did I, did I hear oh. that right? No, no. 77 acres worth of sod got put onto pallets. That's okay. thousands of pallets. There's only 400 square feet. There's roughly 100 pallets to an acre. How um, many pallets to an acre? About a hundred. Okay. Okay. And this is, this is cutting the roots and a little bit of soil off each time. Um, and, you know, we come back in with fertilizer and seed and aeration, physical uh, penetrative irrigation, you know, aeration in order to fix the soil problems and compaction. Right. And uh, what we were finding is that it was becoming exceedingly expensive to grow every consecutive square foot on that same area. Uh, of course, because of the funding requirements, there was no fallow, there was no rotation. It was sod on sod. Right. Maximize profit. Maximize profit at all costs. So, yeah. And, and what I what I realized um, about the crash in 2000, you know, 2000, 2007, the marks in Denver started to implode, but the wealth in Vail and Aspen delays that in our market. And so 2008 was also very strong. In order to get all of that cash out of the sod, we were really extracting it from the soil uh, is the bottom line. And the hubris of the sod farmer is that it's just chemistry. It's just a growing media that is, and we can grow anything. We can grow sod on concrete, Brian. You know, that's what I would tell you. I, I would say that that attitude, that mindset that we're treating our soil just like a growing medium and hauling all the inputs to it to make it grow that we think that it needs. That's not just, that's not just sod farming, Jared. I think that's, I think that's farming in general and it's gotten worse in the last two decades. That, that ability, that hubris to believe that we can control it um, was really deeply set in me. Uh, I, I had learned the greens industry from a golf course mentality, okay. not from a farming. Uh, even though all of my family, uh, you know, were homesteaders essentially in Eastern Colorado, uh, farming and ranching. And so I was, I was around for, you know, I guess traditional is what we called it from the time I was growing up. Um, but it was also NPK farming, row crop monoculture, same concept, at least there, they would rotate between, wheat and corn and flowers or something, you know, right. uh, but it wasn't a, a typical corn soybean rotation. Uh, I, I wasn't familiar with that, but it was the same kind of 
mentality and I was real stuck in it. So that's what led to when I recognized how much it was costing uh, to, to produce a roll of um, a square foot, which is how we do it or acres or whatever. It was, it was really getting expensive. Um, partly I realized now is because the soil was so degraded that the biology was completely gone and we were trying to run a chemical system. Um, and there were abiotic issues. There were, you know, pathogenic, pathogenic biotic issues showing up. There was all these things. And so I started researching how to fix it. I had actually been given um, a book by Joel Salatin called, you know, You Can Farm. And I looked at that. And I said, well, this has nothing to do with us. And I tossed it on the shelf uh, around that time frame, around 2009. And I said, well, alpha is a legal. I've heard of this. It pumps nitrogen and it has a root system that will fix this soil. So I get out there and I order up the Roundup Ready. You know, I had to register. I should have known at the time there was something crazy. If you have to register with the state or with the, the government to get a permit to put this in. But I put in a monoculture of alfalfa over the top of this ground in areas where I just couldn't grow sod realistically anymore. And, and I knew we were going to take a big hit financially, but it was also coming on the heels of that recession, right? right. So demand dropped. And we were relying then on that distribution business, selling chemicals and fertilizers to the maintenance you know, uh, contractors to stay in business. Well, um, as the bits, we had also had to shrink, contract, and also we contracted too slowly. Uh, so I had had 20 some employees at the peak and I was reluctant to let them go because it's hard to find people always here in these mountain communities. And right. that was a slow addition. 2010, we actually had the first and only uh, year of losses financial losses in that business. And um, the owners, you know, living in, in Mexico and Texas at the time said, we don't like this very much, obviously. <laughs> they had been, they had been used to making revenue. Um, and probably a lot. They of didn't it. like the life at times. Yeah. Like in the 2007, 2008 era, it was, it was starting to pour in. Uh, but I, I realized we were sort of reaping what we sowed. Uh, we had also crashed our ecosystem and it had crashed about the same time that the economy did, right? That same kind of, really, it's very similar, I guess, to when the Lehman Brothers crashed, uh, my field started crashing. And, you know, I, I was learning on the side some things by a few people, um, you know, at these farm. And I was going to, I went to an Acres conference uh, yeah, the, that organic farming conference, you know, a um, bunch of Amish people there, which was my first exposure to that. Acres is a acres conference is pretty cool. I've never been. And I, as we're recording this, I think it's actually going on right now. Um, and it's kind of it funny. Is. You mentioned Joel Salatin and your, and your journey started uh, with one of his books. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny. Um, just a couple of days ago, somebody was talking about him and I was looking at my recording schedule and I had a hole and I said, well, why don't I just email Joel Salatin? Let's just throw a hook out there and see what comes back. Let's see what bites. 
And he bid on it. And within three hours, we're scheduled for an interview, which is going to happen in a couple of weeks. So for all y'all podcast fans, in two awesome. weeks, if everything goes good, will be Joel Salatin the week after Christmas. I think that's right. Yeah. First episode yeah, of 2023 on, should be Joel I, Salatin. There you go. And I, I went and took a class from him uh, in Denver in person. You know, when he, they do those those classes through the Stockman Grammar that he yeah. now edits, uh, which was, again, my, the Stockman Grass Farmer was given to me by my uncle, who's still ranching and farming on all of the family ground in eastern Colorado. And that, How many years did you get the Stockman Grass Farmer before it started to sink in? It was probably two or three. I, and, and it was probably what led me to, to all of these things, right? Um, I was growing alfalfa. And, and for a few years... Uh, that alfalfa, it's so pretty, the crop, you know, and it did thrive. Even, it was obviously chemically reaching down and getting in some of those phosphate stores that I had been dumping on uh, the fields, producing its own nitrogen and, and really thriving. Um, and I was at the time uh, just having it hayed by the neighbors. And, you know, in theory, they were, the idea was they were going to uh, take half the hay for the fee and then the other half they would take and then we would trade the value of that and i i started talking about bringing in cattle at some point uh, and they're a cow calf operation they run about 300 head cow calf operation and so it just made sense I, I i didn't really know what i was doing at the time with the with the cattle idea i just thought oh it'd be good to bring them in because i've got all this stuff to grace but i was in the long run trying to put everything back into sod um so I started going to classes. Um, that Stockman grass farmer has a contributor, Alan Nation, you know, who was the editor at the time, was holding a class in Mississippi with Anibal Portomingo, oh. Argentinian. You know him. Yep, I've I've heard of him. You know, and he's he he apparently, you know, not everybody agrees with a lot of his assertions, I'm finding. It was it was an exposure that I had. I I was signed up for the class and Alan Nation was supposed to teach it. And he actually died just a week or two before the class. So Annabelle was, was uh, stuck teaching the whole thing. And Alan's wife was there uh, to, to sort of help and support the thing. But I sat in that class, uh, you know, actually with, I don't know if you've heard of the Alexander Dairy family uh, from Northern California. I have not. But they, they're doing, they're doing that regenerative uh, certified milk and it's now showing up all over the country and, and you said uh, that was alexander dairy in northern california and they're selling regenerative alexander family all right i'm, I'm yes. making and notes they're an amazing family yeah and you you know they're they're really progressive folks um blake and his wife are amazing. and he and his daughter were there uh at this grass finishing class and we were all sitting there trying to learn i thought he was just going to teach me because I'm a grass farmer. Oh, just plant this and that and the other thing, and you would produce excellent beef. It's obviously a little more complicated than that, <laughs> but it was one of my introductions. Um, and then I went to another acres conference and that it is when it really started clicking because I was walking down the hallway, Brian, and I heard this guy talking, uh, just his voice talking about taste buds, um, uh, 
and people. And I was like, what is that about? You know, I mean, there's some kooky stuff at those. And I, I step into the classroom and there's Fred Provenza <laughs> telling me about how the connection from the soil to my tongue and this, what he calls the wisdom body, um, changed my whole life. It really did. It gave me the why. In that next 30 minutes, um, it was starting just these light bulbs going off about why the soil at my farm, for example, didn't smell good. I could just, I could just start seeing the cascade of these issues. And so I introduced myself to Fred uh, and it started, you know, he lived in Colorado at the time and started this friendship and he's been just an absolute mentor to me. And I mean, he gave me the why as to what I was searching for. What am I trying to do? Am I, am I healing this ground to make more money and plant sod? Um, and that was in the time frame, you know, leading up to, I had just bought the business from the owners. They didn't want it anymore because of the liability. Um, and so what, obviously gave me an opportunity to buy it. What year was that? I'm just trying to keep my timeline kind of straight. 2012 was when we agreed, right? Because we had had the loss. We started turning it around, but we had the loss in 2010. So we started the discussion in 2011. Okay. And by 2013, we closed on it. And I had a contract on the land. Uh, this the, the farm itself is 182 acres out of this larger development. You know, it's actually literally, it's got development uh, homes planned across the road. Do you have a farm inside of like a subdivision? Is that what you're telling me? It doesn't feel like that, but it could end up there pretty close, right? Okay. There's uh we are real, real close to we're neighbors with Colorado Mountain College, which is a community college that was actually started by uh people that were donated land from the the, the founders of my farm, the homesteaders of this farm, and the neighbors. They they donated the land to this college and now they're my neighbors. Okay. Um, which is, you know, it's a great relationship we're working on there. But behind me, there's a 6,000 acre parcel that's a neighbor on one side, and it's leased by my neighbors for the cow-calf. It's, you know, scheduled in theory to have 600 houses in a couple golf courses. So that's the kind of pressure we're sort of surrounded by. And, and the neighboring property across my street from me is, is only 90 some houses or something. Um, so we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but that, that is the context in which I find myself. Um, but so the Berkeleys, the owners sold it to me. And in 2012, uh, I also had my first daughter, which Brian is, I, I don't want to underestimate how much of a change. I think that it like softened my tissue, more of these ideas. Okay. Um, and so th that 2014 timeframe, the two hour, two years I was learning really busy, uh, trying to save the distribution business. And you know, I had pulled most of the sod acreage out of production uh, during that time frame. We were only running on maybe 15, 20 acres at the time. And um, also at that time, our demographics shifted. You know, we were running largely on immigrant labor, um, right. traditional Mexican green card labor. And that, that dried up with that recession, you know, over the next few years, those folks just quit coming or if they came back, they were headed to Aspen for $25 an hour. Right. Uh, framing houses. And so we started scrambling and, and ended up, you know, hiring mostly local folks, young folks 
and in very transitory positions, seasonal, you know, they'd work one year and that was about it. Um, so I ended up doing most of the farming myself, um, you know, instead of being the sort of gentleman intellectual farmer, just telling them what it was, I was ended up doing all of the spraying and the fertilizing and the seeding. Well, and it woke up in me something that was just dormant, I think, in my in my ancestry, was that I really enjoy that a lot, that connection with the soil. But it was still pretty sick. I mean, the farm was was sick. And I'll say that the soils degraded, you know, and, and you could see satellite imagery where it's just, there's no color, there's no photosynthetic capacity for a large part of the year in many of these places. The weeds were, and when you call them weeds, and we're talking everything under the sun, knapweed, thistles of any sort, everywhere. And um, my infrastructure was really old. You know, some of the diesel pump sets were getting 30 years old. So I started dumping money to them, um, you know, trying to bring this back. I mean, if I was going to buy this land and I was going to leave any land, whether it's to my children or otherwise, that started changing all those philosophies. And of course, the word regenerative started getting thrown around uh, about the time that it started pinging around in my brain. And with Fred Provenza, then he ended up writing that book, Nourishment, that you know about. Uh, it's become like, I, I give it to everybody. You know, it's that kind of thing to me. But I also simultaneously started reading more of all of these things. Uh, you know, Alan Savory and the whole management became another complete game changer for me. And the philosophical side of it Brian was, you know, people like Wendell Berry and that Masanobu Fukuoka, the yeah. one straw revolution. I can't, I can't get his name either, but yeah, one straw, the one straw Fukunoba guy. Yeah. The one, the, the do nothing farming guy, like, you know, simple, interesting book translated, but just again, all these cracks into my, my existing preconceived notion. And, uh, you know, it took a while, but now I am. I have fully drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, and, and I listened to you and, and people in our space. I became also trying to engage with community, which is something that sod farmers only did, um, you know, at high-end resorts once a year with their <laughs> association. Right. Uh, and that, that didn't work out for me, but I started engaging my local farming community and, and that changed a lot. I started going to the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union stuff and meeting people that care and I realized that I needed to expand my world, um, not be so self-focused, if you will. And it's been it's been really good uh, to do that. But man, it's it's challenged a lot of things. But I started running into this problem, like that. I think you run into is that I start saying, "Yeah, we're all one big farming family," but I don't have to, even though there's a lot of pressure to. I don't have to agree that we're doing things okay, and that it's okay that everybody's still running massive feedlots um yeah i you know participating participating in the current system because that's the way it is doesn't make us complicit in its creation but it also shouldn't prevent us from trying to build a better system or doing something better and like you've got the can opener on a couple cans of worms right now that are kind of <laughs> that are kind of interesting like uh you know, well, a month ago, we were out at Denver for Regenerate. And one of the things they were talking about was 
um, you know, that the redistribution of land and that, you know, the thought that you'll own nothing and be happy and that we need to, we need to really look at this model of that, you know, the, what that one guy say on the last day, the, that lawyer in his presentation, it was like telepresent from California. Didn't he say something like we need to demolish the pillar of private property ownership in this country in order to transform agriculture it scares the hell out of me. I mean, it does. And that, yeah, that's not where I, as most, that's not where I intended to go. Yeah. Um, I know what, what I was well, more thinking it, of is, yeah. you know, the, these cans of worms that, you know, yeah, there are problems with the current system. There's a lot of problems with the current system that we're not really willing to take a honest look at and ask some questions like, why do we need to do this? Is this really the best thing long-term for, for animal health? Like, um, well, the big thing that's going around lately is they're talking about restricting all livestock antibiotics need a prescription in 2023. I'm okay with that. That doesn't bother me because out of my relatively few animals in the scope of the entire beef production chain, I'm not going to have to doctor that many because I have a healthy pasture, I have a healthy system, and I've got good cattle. Now, the people that are trying to defend the current system and say that we need to keep it going, that, you know, these antibiotics are critical for animal health and welfare. They're the same people that are injecting 80 plus percent of cattle that show up at a feedlot with antibiotics when they get off the truck to prevent disease. And okay. So from one point of view, that's a viable strategy. We can't let disease get in our hundred thousand head feedlot where they're all packed in like sardines and there's no natural immunity. We can't let any pathogens get in there. So we have to nuke everything to reduce. So there's no possibility of a pathogen. Then everything's safe, right? Doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that because nature finds a way around all of our antibiotics. She finds a way around all our herbicides, our pesticides, our insecticides. She always does. She always has, and she'll keep doing it. The only thing we can do is try to invent stronger and more lethal toxins which the stronger and more lethal the toxins get that we spray on our food and that we feed to our food. Like it's, I think it's fallacy to think it's, it's fallacy to believe that long-term the chemicals that we spray on our food have no effect on the human body and human health. I, I, I just think it's absolutely absurd to think that, that all the chemicals that we use in food production have no effect on human health. It is possible, I will grant, that some of those things may not have a huge negative effect. But the problem is you don't um, PFAS, that forever chemical class, you hear about it showing up in compost, and it, it's, we're only just scratching this to that, that problem because nobody's tested in most of the country yet. But again, it was presumed safe without, it, it's, like the, it's like this with everything, um, the consequences of ignoring the potential and just assuming that it'll be okay could be catastrophic. Now, it's one of the issues. Everything you talked about, Brian, is absolutely true. Uh, us trying to control and subdue nature, and, and by that I mean the pathogens we're talking about in this case. And if you look everywhere, you mentioned sardines. They are 
dumping antibiotics into salmon farms again. And they're finding that they have to. It's, it's, it is repeated and repeated throughout every human system, whether it is on the slaughter floor at the slaughterhouses, the, the sterilization, uh, the, they're trying to sterilize everything. And then that is where in those giant plants that these the recalls are coming from, you know, and, and it's in hospitals that you find all of the worst antibiotic resistant pathogens because they have to coat everything in antibiotics. So you're absolutely right. And that all of these philosophical people I was talking to you about, the concept is the same. No matter what avenue we're talking about is every time we, we humans try to separate ourselves and say, no, we, we know better than the natural system, whether you call it creation or, or, or evolutionary biology, I don't care. The system is really good at what it does. And um, every time we think we know better, every time, I've never seen a time we don't get it wrong. Um, so that was me having to look at myself and what I did, um, extracting all of that ecosystem brilliance out of the land and turning it into cash was what I was doing. And so trying to get back there, I also kept falling into the same kind of thing. Well, I can do this. I'll fix it with chemicals and, and you know inputs. It's still very hard. Uh, Brian to back off, but I will tell you a little, little anecdote about how I how I got out of that. I have I have a center pivot, a small pivot, uh, 26 acre pivot there. Okay. And it's on the side of a mountain. And the bottom part of it is down in a lowland area heading towards the wetlands. And I had lost a bunch of sod production in that lowland due to soil saturated um with water. Right. Wouldn't drain. Right. Well, and, so, and I literally spent much money and you know time tiling. I I trenched, put in drain tiles, poured in gravel and fabric into my soil. Then drain I planted tiles, it, Drain yeah. tiling to me is something that's just it's a foreign concept. Like we're gonna go in and put put a pipe eight feet in the ground to take excess water out because it's too wet to grow crops. Like that that makes no sense to me in my context at all okay but that is your brain has gotten to a place where it sees that i was oh that's simple you know you have too much water put a little pole in the bottom of that and drain it right away it makes sense and they're and they're doing it all over the country i i i was wrong there's no question so I, I said okay now that it's dried up let me plant some alfalfa in that soil so i put the alfalfa in well the drain tile didn't always work. We have a lot of clay soils. They seal up pretty fast. The floods came in and took out my alfalfa and I was giving up. I was like, this is insane. I had, I had 12 acres of just ruined ground. So I rented a little old pull behind no-till drill from the NRCS. I dumped every weird seed I could think of in that thing, you know, and I, I had probably started hearing Gabe's Brown's name at that point, you know, and this was in, 2015 probably 2014 okay and uh i walked away from that field i literally pretended it didn't exist because it was dead to me i was so angry i i just couldn't believe how bad it was happening and today right it is my showpiece pasture it's one that's on my website super diverse 
has all kinds of mix of grasses and legumes, a little bit of thistles, but every other kind of food you could think of is in there. And the cattle thrive on it. Uh, it grows back super quickly. And the soils underneath are now structured and black. And guess what? There's no flooding. No, there's nothing. It's unbelievable how good the water cycle is now. Probably and don't need drain, drain. Completely. I was going to say, you probably don't need drain tile to drain that field anymore. I don't need anything. In fact, it's amazing to me how it stays wet in that perfect zone all the time. And that is, it's just what everybody talks about in our world, this carbon deal, you know, and, and when, when we hear those, those terms about every percent of carbon adds this many gallons to your acres or whatever, I also resist to some of those things because we're trying to put a number on something that it varies so much depending on your soil types. And right. You name it. I mean, if you're in the sand hills, North Ray uh, versus my clay mountain, it's not the same, but, but organic matter is better no matter what. There's just no question. And that perennial root system is doing an amazing thing with the, the fungal hyphae, the mycorrhizal relationships going on there. The, the bugs, the bugs, Brian, are out of control. And it's become one of the, one of the main keys to my farm now is recognizing the proliferation of biodiversity in insects, in birds. I mean, I'm having such, it's, it's giving me so much drive now. Um, and and, and a, 10 years ago, yeah. when you were still sod farming and trying to have a little bit of alfalfa, all those bugs and birds and wildlife would be absolute death for your crop. In fact, I, we we're talking to, I was talking to somebody yeah. yesterday. Um, Cause you know, I, I've, got my program with my cows and, you know, I'm, I'm feeding uh, pro earth health cattle active tubs. Cause I, they're about the only tub that's American grass fed association and IMI certified. So, you know, that's a pretty clean product. Um, and I'm feeding alfalfa. And the question was, was, well, what was the alfalfa sprayed with? Is it organic? Is it non GMO? Like, fuck, I don't know. Like, it, it pro probably not. I'm just going to say probably not. Even for the price that I had to pay for it this year, <laughs> it's probably just, yeah. you know, regular field run alfalfa, nothing special. It's probably had everything in the world sprayed on it. And the 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 person I was talking to had this to say about it. It's, well, you have to spray alfalfa because if you don't, bugs will eat that first cutting. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I'm not an alfalfa farmer. Maybe there's truth to that. Maybe there's not. I just, I, I keep going back to this thing, like having an enterprise to fit your environment. You know, I, I don't know if you've heard me say that a lot recently, but it's something that I say pretty often. And it has a tendency to come back up a lot more in the wintertime when there's guys in, you know, northern Montana that are trying to fight through four feet of snow to feed cows. Like, okay, my question is now, not why did you not plan to graze all winter outside when there's four feet of snow? My question is, if there's four feet of snow for six months of the year, why do you own cows? Like that, that becomes the question at that point, but we can't, we can't get there, right? Context, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Context. So where are we going? Um, you know, all, all things appropriate in context, but are we really asking ourselves the honest questions about is what I'm doing appropriate in this context? For all the extra inputs I've got to bring in to make it work. Well, I can tell you 
Brian, on that alfalfa subject, let me just, it's one of my learning moments. I, I had this beautiful crop, um, again now, monoculture, right? I, I was even proud of myself for having sprayed it less often uh, with glyphosate than, than was required under, you know, the, the growing recommendations. But it was culture. And it is real pretty to a sod farmer to see, you know, 30-inch alfalfa as green and lush as it could be uh, with, with no contaminated weeds or anything. The next year, I got decimated by weevil. That insect found the crop, you know, even at 7,000 feet, and I had 100% loss. We didn't really bale anything. They came and maybe got 10 round bales off of the whole, the whole farm. Um, I realized one thing I had done was kill all the weeds in my pipe tracks. I, I'm running handset well, aluminum irrigation because that's what I have from the sod farming days. Like a, like a side um, roll wheel line type thing? No hand on on the ground, you know, three, two, three, and four inch on the ground impact sprinklers every sixty feet. Uh, oh wow! Handset like a lot of California farmers. Okay, and that was the sod farmers' deal, right? We would move those pipes out of the way, harvest, put them back. Um, I'm transitioning, but it's hard, right? I'm, I'm stuck in sort of my paradigm still. But right, it, it was devastating to watch those weevils ruin my crop. First cutting and. I ordered some, I think it was a BT spray or it might've been Spinosad. I don't remember one of the organic insecticides. And okay. I was like, I'm going to take care of this problem. I didn't spray it because I started at the same time. I'm learning these people, these, these sort of gurus about <laughs> the fact that I may be just asking for more trouble because I'm killing off other insects. Maybe not all, uh, but I'm killing off other insects. And I started observing, I started looking and I get on the ground and I'm crawling around and on the thistle, Ryan, you would find all of these ladybug larvae and they'd like love it. And I said, oh, no wonder I destroyed all the thistle. It was so clean and so beautiful, but I took away all the beneficial insects. The, the next year I let it go. Not, not only did I let it go, but I was trying to learn what all kinds of critters I could uh, insect type critters that I could promote on my farm. And to be honest, I think the one that solved the evil problem was parasitoid wasps. Uh, the next season, Brian, there was during this, during that spring time, there was just a ridiculous amount of these beady little wasps everywhere, everywhere. And I was like, what is going on? You know, a little bit creepy, honestly. <laughs> yeah. The weevil is never ever made a presence on my farm since. In the last seven years, um, six years, the weevil, you'll see come and then it just goes away. The, the beneficial insects keep it from becoming a problem. And I'm not spraying anything. I'm just leaving some of my chicory because I've got a bunch of plants, areas where I got chicory growing. Okay. And I think those wasps are, are breeding in the stock of that chicory. I quit mowing down all my stuff in the wintertime to leave these breeding sites. I, I don't know, I'm no entomologist, but all I'll tell you is it has gotten to be a passion of mine to see bugs. And I mean, I, I, I'll take bugs in and look at them under my little sort of cheap microscope I've got. And it it's become an unbelievable, um, I guess, motivator for me. 
and I still would like some help. You know, there's that ecdiasis, I think it's called foundation. This guy, yep, ecdiasis um, foundation, farms, and he's he's big in insects. I would love to get involved somehow. You know, and I'm I've, I've reached out a couple times through through a couple channels, but I, I've just I need help in all these things. Um, the Audubon Society. I I have been watching the bird population, Brian, and I and I have ground nesting birds. And I'm even trying to figure out through my intensive grazing uh, how to avoid crushing their nests, which, you know, because those birds have a large role. There's no question they have a large role. What they do, I don't know, but there's many more of them now. And um, you, you can't fool the, the right birds. Direction. Did you know the Audubon uh, Society has a conservation ranching program? I do. I am trying <laughs> to get my farm uh, be... What do they call it B safe B or something? I don't know. Yeah. So I, the reality I, is, I spent. I'm working through that process too, and it's uh, it hasn't been short. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's been hard. I haven't right. had to jump through any any flaming hoops. I've uh, been through. Let's see. I've been through. Autobahn's been here for the application. As it's forever quail forever came out, wrote the habitat management plan. And I've been audited by Food Alliance. So, like, I am. Okay. This is the first time I've said anything about it on a podcast because there are so many steps in this process. Yeah. But I am, like, maybe within the next couple of episodes, hopefully by the end of the year, I'll, I'll be formally part of the Audubon Conservation Ranching family. I hope to be there with you. There's a, there's, it's like anything else um, when it comes to even though I don't want to call it a bureaucracy, it's a bureaucracy a little bit. The paperwork side, I've spent a long time working on, and I read through all of the requirements, but we're running into this thing where there's a discussion about 50% of your acres under management, uh, according to the way I read it, need to be managed for, you know, bird diet, biodiversity and, and in bird habitat. And the way some people have read it is that it needs to be 50% native range. Um, my farm doesn't have any native range unless you count some wetlands uh, as part of that, but way over percent of it at any one time is in perennial plants cover, mostly pasture, right? Um, no, no monocrops anymore. I have ruined my alfalfa stands with a bunch of overseeding. I'm putting so much stuff in there and letting the weeds grow and, and grazing for diversity, not grazing for alfalfa production anymore, um, which we can get into. But I, I am doing that. I believe that my farm is, and I think the evidence shows, um, Brian, I had a swamp hawk. It's a northern harrier okay. uh, show up on my farm for the first time four years ago, five years ago, something like that. And it was cool. It was cool to see him fighting with the red tails, you know, uh, playing with them sometimes, I think, too. But for two years, I loved seeing this animal come in and hunt my farm. Uh, two years ago, there was two of them. I was like, oh, my God, I got a pair of these, these animals here, right? And I was super excited. I'd been putting up raptor poles using old three-inch aluminum pipe and sticking it to the top of my elk fence poles way up in the air. Uh, and, and trying to help my my raptors to, to hunt. And this last year, uh, I saw one 
of those swamp hawks. And I was really sad because I figured the other one had gotten munched by something. Um, but I'm too pessimistic at times, Brian. Come, I think it was June or July. They'll all be of back. a sudden there was four. There was four. There you go. They had been, they had been sharing, I think, this is just my speculation, sharing responsibility on the nest. And there was four and they would fly around me when I was out there building paddock. They'd be screaming at me. And it was like, it's a proof that I'm doing something right. If those orders of animals, um, you know, in that trophic cascade, I think they call it, if those things are getting that complex, um, I know I'm doing something right, you know? And, and I've even had the red, uh, those cranes, uh, I've had them breed successfully on the farm now a couple of years. That's it's, cool. It's, it's super cool to see. And so I know I'm doing well. And I feel like if I convince the folks at Audubon uh, that I am, my farm is in the right mode, we are doing the right things. I actually am not that concerned about certifications, uh, somewhat out of principle, if you will. I'm real skeptical of, of greenwashing. Yep. Yep. We can circle back to that one later. Um, so I'll say this about auto, yeah. about the Audubon Conservation Ranching and the Blue Nest Beef Program. If you're yeah. hung up on some of the things in that application and you haven't talked to, I believe his name is Chris Wilson. If you're hung up on the application and you haven't had a conversation with Chris, you need to call him. And he'll walk you through and he'll tell you what you need to worry about and what you don't. And he'll he'll help you he'll he'll keep you moving on that process if you're hung up on that application. And yeah. I don't I was yeah, just on be, there looking be cool. because I was, you know, I was wanting to see where everybody was at. I don't think there's anybody in Colorado that's in the uh, Audubon Conservation Ranging Program. Well, the Parker Pastures folks, Bill and, and Kelly Parker uh, and Gunnison, they're there. And part of the reason I started this journey is because they've been uh, real helpful to me. You know, uh, I even went and visited Bill and, and chatted with him about stuff. They're a great family. Um, they're people who recognize I mean, they're, they're in the direct consumer beef business in Colorado. And so they could view me as a competitor and just shut me down, but they didn't. They're super welcoming and, and kind and they have that certification. Now they're working on you know a lot of least um, native range up there and then pastures and stuff. So I suspect it was kind of a shoe in uh, for them, but they are there and they have the label on their beef. They get theirs processed, the same processor I do. In fact, I think I, I mimicked them because I was like, where am I going to get my beef done? It's any good. Uh, Cause there's no processing in our Valley. It's one of the things I've got a, a bone with, but um, they, they got it done. And so I, I feel like my farm should participate. Um, I feel like the marketing, it might help Brian. I mean, I'm trying to sell beef these days and I think you're just now starting that process yourself. That's um, a little, not much. <laughs> Just a little. We're working on it. I'm I'm working on it. It's going pretty well, but I've I've got a walk-in freezer um, that I bought from my, my cousin who had been doing a beef and and pork and and chicken operation in eastern Colorado. Um, I bought a walk-in and it is packed. It is it's so full. I've got to start moving more beef and it's going. Uh, but building my market, you know, this is only the second year we've been actively marketing beef off the farm. Um, and there's a tug of war going between how many animals I want to run to heal my ground and how many I can get sold out the door. 
Yeah, that that's always a fun that's a fun bit of math to try to work out. Like how many should I be running? How many do I need to make a living? And how many do I think I can sell? And if you think you can sell a bunch, you're probably wrong. And you need to have a place to be able to store a bunch of those. So, uh, so what, yeah. what are your customers? What's your customer base? If you could like, tell me mm. what your, um, what's your average customer look like and what's their demographic? That I think I've been using the term avatar for that person. And I think I kind of guessed it ahead of time, but it's proven out to be uh, upper middle class women. I mean, it's almost exclusively women, not entirely, but mostly women driving these purchases. They tend to be between uh, 30 and 50. Uh, uh, again, that's sort of demographically demographically average. And they are looking for specifically local first and second uh, grass fed, you know, whatever. And I am I'm promoting my regenerative farm uh, as a way to both have your beef and say that you're on the planet at the same time. I, I believe it. I don't believe it to be greenwashing, Brian. I believe even though my farm is small, if somebody comes and stands on my farm and sees the impact those animals are having um, directly on the ground, you and I both agree that that is, that's the way the land wakes up. It is being healed. Yes, I destroyed uh, uh, largely, right? And the people I worked for, and to be honest, probably the farmers before that, there was a lot of pretty uh, rough treatment of that ground. Before probably even a chain of, of poor decisions going all the way back to the original settlers. Colorado uh, potatoes, it were huge in this valley. Um, and I think the potato beetle and every other disease probably started wiping out some of this potato production about the time that Idaho got more competitive. So there's still ancient remnants of potato harvesters on my farm. Um, <laughs> but clearly there was, it was a, it was, and, and then they started grazing, but I think it was set stock, continuous grazing, um, you know, everything that, that I've learned. Um, so yes, and it is, it is natural, you know, West Jackson talks about the fact that there's, there's degraded land everywhere. I think uh, Gabe Brown always says it too. Every land is, has been degraded by us. Mine just happens to be an intense version of that. So to see that that beef is healing, the production of that beef is healing the ground. I, I, it's marketing, but it's real. It is tangible. My problem is I don't have the, the skill or the time to do enough monitoring. So I've been trying to figure out how to get help with that, right? The, I want to be able to quantify how I'm helping the ground, you know? Um, and I'd like to, to test my beef for nutrient density. I watch what they're eating and I know they taste good. Now we are talking about largely, you know, Angus mix here that I'm running. Um, so they, they fatten pretty well. These are moderate framed, you know, a lot of that uh, kit feral genetics, Okay. In there. But so that part is just getting lucky, I guess, where these, where these, the stock are coming from. But I know they taste good. I'd like to see how much this biodiversity and the healing of the soil affects that nutrient density, if you will. And that's a big point to me. You, you brought up uh, Fred Provenza earlier. And, and I, that was, love doing that interview. Fred was just 
awesome to talk to. And yeah, we talk about the flavor of the land and nutritional wisdom. The couple of cattle that I've kept or that I've kept pieces of and we've we've been eating that are processed here. So I took these cows from the native range pasture where they had a protein tub. And I took them to the processor. So I'm going to say it was pasture finished, not even grass finished, pasture finished on native range, like it about as low energy budget as you can get. And uh, so when we were out at Regenerate, I had had pictures of of a ribeye and of, a, of I think two ribeyes and two sirloins, one from each animal. And I showed our friend Mike Calicrate, and he's like, oh, that's probably a great high choice, which, okay, just looking at a picture in a vacuum wrapped on somebody's cell phone. Fine. If he thinks that grade, you know, high choice, that tells me that, you know, it's probably fairly decent quality. But what I'm getting at is what's the first time we tasted that meat. I can close my eyes and I can see the pasture they were standing in the day before they went to the processor plant. And as I'm, as I'm eating it, my brain is picking up, you know, the different flavonoids and different notes in the meat. And it's what some people might call quote gamey. That's not gamey. That's the flavor of the land. That's the flavor of what the cow ate for the last, you know, 60 to 90 days. Um, if you want it to be slightly sweet, and mostly flavorless, you can feed it corn for, you know, you feed it corn for 60, 90 days and you can get that flavor. If you want, you know, something that's packed with nutrients, has an amazing bouquet of flavors, get some pasture finished grass fed beef. Well, Brian, I, I hear what you're saying and I feel like what I'm actually shooting for, and I think you and I talked about this a little, is a, is a bit of a compromise there. Um, Anibal Portomingo, the, the Argentinian, in in one of our discussions, he talks about taste but, testing. Yeah, let's just say, for the sake of the people that don't know who Anibal is, if you want to know how to grass finish an animal and make it taste good, he's probably the one guy that has all the knowledge. <laughs> that's that's why I went to him, and his. His studies, you know, he gets into to fat and tenderness and all of those things and perceptions and that word gamey you bring up, like what that means, because it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. He uses, he tends to use the term off flavors also, because that can come from uh, too low of a pH, an acidic soil base. It's very, very likely that you'll get these metallic notes or, or quote unquote off flavors. Um, but in my neck of the woods, I'm trying to convince people who largely like, they prefer their flavorless grain finished um, feedlot beef from Costco. And their history, if they tried grass finished was, oh, I don't like it. It's tough, lean and gamey. But Anibal says, and I have proven out, uh, is that if your primary nutrition uh, right towards the end comes from alfalfa and ryegrass. There is an amazing amount of, of no gaminess in that meat. Um, I contend that you will still get a deep nutritional profile based on that entire summer's forage, uh, you know, stored in those 
muscle tissue, bones, and the ligaments are that diverse array, especially in some of my most diverse pastures. You know, we're talking crazy amounts of things, including thistle. They, they cattle thus far have learned to love thistle flowers. They eat them like lollipops. It's amazing. I, I don't know how that tongue is so tough, but they pop those thistles in their mouths and, and it's wonderful to see. But that, when you talk about the flavonoids and the terpenes and all of those compounds that Fred talks about being in there uh, from native range, particularly, right? I mean, even if they, they self-medicate because they feel something off balance in their system in the room. And I try to provide as much of that as I can through as much of the season on fairly managed pastures. Um, you know, I mean, we are talking, I have chicory and I have plantain and lots of dandelions and, um, and a lot of different clovers, not just alfalfa in there. And then, of course, there's grass diversity as well. You know, some natives, some quite a bit of Timothy. Um, you know, and I'm trying to just get everything I can out there. But at the end of the time, I'm putting them into those fields. Uh, it's a little, it's a little scary because of of the bloat potential that I've been, you know, told over and over by my neighbors is going to kill everything. Yeah, um, so far so good, but. <laughs> But uh, these these cattle, their rumens get really adjusted to our place, you know. And by that time, I can put them in a field that's only got twenty percent, um, you know, grasses and weeds and stuff in that alfalfa. And as long as it's it's at that stage of alfalfa where those blooms are coming in strong, they love it, you know. Um, and I'm I'm looking at and taking pictures of cow dung every day. Uh, I never realized how how important that was going to be. <laughs> to my life uh looking at patties and but i you know sometimes they a little rich and i gotta start i pulse them through the day you know I'm, I'm working on a grazing system where i'm giving them a different breakfast than they're getting for you know post lunch and dinner right uh, trying to focus on those those legumes uh the heavier ones in the late afternoon you know as those as those sugars are building as high as possible, the bricks level, which I'm only just learning to test. Um, I, I'd like to just be able to taste it myself, but I haven't calibrated. I haven't calibrated my brain yet, so I can't quite do it. You can't taste the difference between four and 4.5. Trust me. <laughs> you, you just can't, you can't maybe between five and 10, but between four and four and a half, it, it doesn't work. Um, I, well, I do some, some of that sand coin looks edible, so I've tried it, but it's it's not quite as tasty as I as it looks. I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, yeah, bricks testing is a good thing, but what is it? I don't think we really all know what it means yet. Like I think we're just starting to understand. Right. Okay, more sugars is better. More sugars, more gain. I get that. Uh, but what if the line is fuzzy? What if the line is sharp and bright? You know, that that may mean different things. Um, and how the bricks responds during the day on a plant community in a specific area, how that bricks responds, you know, during the day between, you know, sunrise, peak photosynthesis and sunset, that could be different from the same species of plant on the other side of the pasture for reasons we don't understand. Yes. And what complicates it even more is, is the individuals. Every one of these cattle is an individual, even though it's sometimes really interesting to think about it that way. But I watched the distinct 
patterns, both in performance, how they respond to pastures, um, how much one is eating versus the other. I mean, and, and clearly what they're choosing, you know, I mean, I had this leaders, ones that really enjoyed it and others that were sort of turned off by it. Uh, so you get a complication of all of those temporal things through a day. And all I can do is try to rest on those principles, like you said, trying to maximize those sugars, but also like Temple Grandin and, and Joel Salatin, I, I heard them in a conversation recorded uh, not that long ago. And he was talking about how he'd always move his cows at the same time of day, you know, whether it was like between four and five o'clock. And she started talking about being more flexible, not training those cattle. That's always the same time every day. Cause you've seen them pile up at that, at that gate. Cause they, they get trained exactly to know when it is. She's right. The more I, I force some variety in their lives, the less crazy they are about, you know, when they're going to move. But I think it also would lead to this, each individual learning something different uh, and, and getting a little more diversity out of it. These are all just principles. And if I apply them thus far, like you mentioned about antibiotics, we've just had no health problems. And I do, I do some crazy things like well, winters, I put uh, organic apple cider vinegar in their water tanks every day. Okay. I don't know <laughs> what it does. But I'm I'm convinced uh, by you know what they tell me that that probably helps. And Steve you know, Campbell says it works, and I'm gonna trust him. <laughs> Apple cider vinegar oh. is just too freaking expensive and hard to get for me, and I need I need two semi loads a year. So it's it's not really a thing I'm into. Well, and in in your context, that's sexual issue that maybe not, but maybe out in your range you've got different forbs that can offer something of the micronutrient profile um, that in my sort of manufactured fields, I, I don't get, but I'm also trying to produce a product that is super intensive. That is, you know, it's going to be pretty costly uh, based on my needs. The land costs alone where I live are so crazy per acre that if you're going to justify raising cattle, you're going to have to make sure that you're selling that for a premium and even even then, at the prices I'm selling it for, I'm I'm really not even putting into the production costs uh, like the RFP school told taught me to land costs and overheads. They they are at the moment left to the side because if I put them in, it's depressing. So, so I'm mostly dealing with direct costs in my equation right now. As long as you're honest with yourself about that, that's what really matters. And I know it's part of the plan, but you know, you talk about salt and scenery, and that's what I'm I'm shooting for. You know, that that C90, for example, that you even advertise, my cattle love it. Yep. I actually like it. It tastes really good. Um, and when you I mix, I grow garlic on the farm. Uh, one of the side enterprises that a friend and I are working on is growing garlic. I was blending up the weird cloves uh into a paste and mixing into my C90. Oh, I bet they loved it. Yeah, they they think it's great. And the fly control, I, you know, it seems to help. I don't have a huge problem with that anyway. But I kind of figure uh, if I'd rather do any of these things, put that into my direct cost, trying to figure out my price per pound to sell and recognize that it's saving me, I hope, uh, antibiotic bills. Because once I put antibiotics in them, based on my protocols, they got to get pulled uh, and sent to the, sent to the market so they, they got to go to the commodity I'm, system to the feedlot where they don't give a shit if they're pumped full of antibiotics 
And I would like to do that to no animals. Uh, to be honest, that is what, you know, my goal is to not have that happen. And thus far, I've been okay. Now, you know, you know, you can only, when you're, when you're at the size, I only brought in 31 head this year. Um, Ryan. So I'm, I'm like you said, small scale and starting, you know, um, you gotta, you gotta that, start where you are and the enterprise has to fit the environment. If you brought in 60, you'd have to buy a bunch of imported. You'd have to buy a bunch of inputs. You'd have to buy a bunch of feed. And then it wouldn't be anything resembling a sustainable or remotely regenerative operation because you're having to import that much feed. Yeah. And, and I probably on my production, uh, I probably could have handled that this year, just seeing how, how quickly Brian, my fields are responding. It's a, the, the growth is amazing. So it's, it's what's a lure. It's attempt to get more animals in there, but I, I don't have the funds to build a 2000 square foot freezer, which is what would happen if I couldn't sell them fast enough. I could send them all to the butcher all day and pay for the processing. But if I'm not selling enough, that equation goes upside down pretty fast. Right. And so that is, it's again, it's that seesaw that I'm working out. Um, my market's growing, but you know, to be perfectly honest, I I have to keep in mind, I don't know that this is going to be an effective standalone enterprise for me, right? I mean, I, I have another farmer who's been really helpful. The uh, Jake and Molly Shipman run this farm called Dooley Creek. And they are, again, direct consumer people. They've been so helpful in getting me going. Uh, and they're right here in my valley. You know, I may end up leaning on them to move more animals uh, simply because, you know, I got to look at that as a bigger picture and what's right for my farm. I don't want weddings on this farm, but I may have to even look at things like, you know, agritourism. I have a really pretty setting on my farm. Maybe I've got to, to do more of that and less beef, but I will need the animals to, to keep healing the ground. Cause that's like the, the first thing. And I, the phrase I use, Brian, because regenerative is a, I'm, I struggle with that word. It's just a word. The word that I use that came out of Fred Provenza's teaching was renourishing. So I have, I, my, my um, mission statement is renourishing earth because that's what I feel like I'm doing in the entire cycle is putting actual nourishment to a living soil in the form of energy reciprocity through those cattle. Um, and the rest of my management trying to capitalize on the energy from the sun and then the nourishment coming out is those that nourishing meat you're talking about that taste now, now i say that i taste joy now that when you close your eyes and chewing on that piece of steak you'd have to say that i'm i'm totally hallucinating but i say that you can taste the joy in those cattle because i've seen how happy they are i mean literally kicking their heels up it's a it's a thing that Growing up around cattle, I didn't, I didn't ever connect with, you know, we were using hot shots and drives and, and things that, you know, I, I don't have anything. I, I sometimes use one of my step-in posts as an extension of my arm to get my cattle to move, but it's, it is no stress. I am looking for no stress. In fact, if I bring stress to the table and they're not cooperating, I've taught myself, I got to walk away, do it later. <laughs> can't, can't force that stress. So I want to taste joy in that beef and that's my goal so i feel like there's a lot of times that i can get more done by myself in the corrals with six guys sitting in the pickups watching me than with six people trying to quote help i 
a lot of times working cattle is an experience that too many cooks spoil the pot. I think, um, and I'll just say this about, you know, working with my cattle because, okay, I've got Corianes. There's some old roped out heifers and cows in there that have really bad PTSD when they get in the corral, when they get confined. And then when a horse shows up and somebody on that horse starts moving a little fast, those cows get triggered real quick guys on horses we got to stay slow if that horse goes more than a slow walk like we're putting too much energy into the cows and just get guys calm down like out of the rammer jammer attitude that grew out of all the western movies in the 50s and 60s that guys came up with in the 70s and 80s and applied to the 80s and 90s until the world heard about Bud Williams and Temple Grandin, and we started to change. And ever since then, you know, I'll admit things have gotten better. Still, probably not where we need to be industry wide, but I don't know if we'll ever be there industry wide. We can just do what we can do on our operations, and that's all I'm trying to do. Oh, Ryan, I'm so with you, and and I it's taken some learning, real learning on my part, um, that yes, we don't have horses, but I'd have a, I'd have an employee on that, uh, UTV with that little diesel motor driving and that energy you talk about, we had some, we had some train wrecks where the employee gets a little spooked about where he's supposed to be. He steps on that throttle. Next thing I know, I've got the entire group running down the road. They're, (laughs) they're going to be somewhere wrong. And, and I had to just stop all of that. And I started, like you were talking about, I go out there by myself on foot. I even now walk to them. Instead of driving to them, I'll walk over there. And that is the only way I can very slowly and steadily get them to all start lining their heads up the right direction. I do try to use those couple of leaders um, if you get them focused. And it is so much better. And I'm learning all this. And Bud Williams, I mean, I, I, I try to learn. I can on YouTube or books or whatever. And I built a Bud box and it changed everything in terms of loading and sorting. I mean, it, it became, I mean, why didn't somebody teach me that? But anyway, it's so great. But it, the number one issue for me personally is I got to stay calm and keep everybody else calm. If I start getting agitated, it's just like those cattle are amazing. They're amazing at their sensitivity to everything, your presence, your tone, your hands. And um, if you're getting agitated, the cattle are getting agitated and it's usually a time to take a 10 minute break. Totally. And, and I can tell my customers that they can come and watch these things if they want. I mean, you know, it's a bit, a little odd, uh, that part, but I want them to understand that it's part of the philosophy. It's one of the protocols on my farm. It's just as important to me as saying no grains, no hormones is also trying to say like, as we're trying to maximize the health, the joy of these cattle. And I have no problem. Uh, I'm not anthropomorphizing them. I don't believe to say that there is joy in the system. I, I don't think that's a human limited. It's not an emotion, but a human limited respect. Cause you see what else do you call it? When you watch that animal eating the flowers off of a sandfoin plant and they are just, I mean, they're almost smiling. I don't know what else to call it, <laughs> They are eating machines and they're really good at it and they're happy when they're doing it. So 
it's a little bit out there, but then again, Ryan, the guy that was uh, spraying chemicals on sod and growing turf didn't have any room for any of these things. Now there's in our community, uh, Joel Salatin even talks about subtle energies. You've probably heard of these folks talking about the electromagnetic soup that we're in and how it's ruining everything. I still have resistance to a lot of those things, you know, so I'm not, it's not like I've gone completely over to where I can accept everything that our regenerative community absorbs, but I'm close, you know, <laughs> I will, I will say that there's some of that intangible, but I'm also not going to buy those steel plates. They were, they were peddling there at uh, regenerate that are going to supposed to save my brain for my cell phone or, or whatever it was. Yeah, I'm not not necessarily sold on those either. <laughs> I don't think 5G is going to turn us all into zombies. Ah, uh, yes, right. Because and and you and I've talked about conspiratorial things. At this point, I guess I just let all that stuff go because I'm going to observe my farm, my cattle, the flavor of that meat, my land, and the 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 livestock. Uh, and I don't mean my cattle. I mean the birds and the bugs, and all that stuff. And if if you sense that it's um, healthy, I think we, Fred Brins will tell you, we have enough innate wisdom left in us if we are open to it to sense when it's healthy and when it's going the right way. And there is a smell that you probably know, but I, I didn't know it for the first 15 years of my farming life. I didn't know what soil could smell like. And when I turned, which I did drop a, a two bottom plow in the soil, and flipped over all this alfalfa ground to put in back in the sod. What I smelled when I did that was something I'd never smelled on my farm, which was really good, sweet soil. Um, and yes, I put it back into turf grass, that acres, and now it's back to pretty sick, not as sick as it used to be, um, but in order to still make enough cash to pay the land costs, I am... I am working on how much sod I have to grow out of my acres. And right now it's like six, <laughs> but again, if I don't sell more cattle, it might have to go back up to 20. Um, it's just one of the struggles of recognizing that regenerating is a real thing, but sometimes I'm cashing out that bank account of what I've regrown uh, in order to, to stay on the farm. Cause if I leave, my guess is it's a, a fancy horse farm and, and there's nothing coming off of it for anybody's consumption. So, yeah. And I, I had, I had written down here uh, one of my notes to talk about succession and keeping the ranch because that was, that was one of the things that has been on my mind since regenerate. And I, I did kind of want to ask you if you had some sort of a succession plan. I was interested in how, in how you came to be in possession of it. You kind of answered those questions already. And I, I think a lot of operators are facing, well, I think a lot of operators are, you know, are older than I am. Average age has only gone up. It's in the upper sixties now in agriculture. Right. Um, so there's, there's a whole generation of guys that are facing retirement and, I imagine the vast majority of them have been on the commodity treadmill and part of the commodity rat race and, you know, the, the whole business of enriching all the people that are farming the farmers. And yes, if he, if he's within 10 years of aging out of the system, 
whether retirement or just, you know, end of the line, whatever that means, there's not a whole lot of incentive to change. There's not any incentive in the system for those older operators to pass to to pass down that land to a young person uh you know for a reasonable rate they have the incentive to hold on to it as long as possible so that land asset that they've had in this commodity production scheme for decades stays in that scheme is the the value the land prices in the I states, like I'm thinking Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, you know, where they grow all of the freaking corn or a lot of the farm subsidies go, you know, they're selling land for $20,000, $30,000 an acre. $10 corn doesn't pay for that. Not with $5 diesel fuel. There is, there is, there's no universe that that math works. Okay. But somehow people are still buying it and they're still staying in business. John Deere makes, you know, bigger tractors and bigger combines every year that cost more money. But commodity price stays the same. You know, it may drift up a little bit. It may drift down. Price of beef, like, all right, we don't have to talk about price of beef. I mean, it basically stayed static for a long time. The producer's share continued to erode, and it's just been within the last two years, prices have started to go back up. Beef prices aren't high, people. They're getting close to where they should be to reflect the actual cost of production. And that's what we're going to start seeing all across the economy, not just in agriculture, is we're going to start th seeing things over the next oh, probably five to seven years as a lot of these ESG mandates that companies have made start to kick in. We're going to start seeing the true cost of food. We're going to start seeing these companies de-externalizing some of their costs or at least properly accounting for them and started to pass those on to consumers and consumers are going to start getting aware of them. Brian, that what you brought up there is one of the biggest fundamental. When I think about the bigger picture of agriculture in general, our environment, our economy, I am, I'm a real big fan of an economist named Tom soul. Um, How do you spell his guy, last name? S O W E L L. And he he's he's really he's been around a long time, uh, but but he's labeled a conservative. Uh, so he he's also a black guy. So he gets sort of shoved out of the way from both sides. But he's one of the smartest people that's been on this on this continent uh, in the last hundred years for sure. And he talks about the in economy, which is the same in farming, I believe. Uh, in, until you get into a regenerative mindset that there are no such thing as solutions, only trade-offs. And in that trade-off scenario is how we've gotten to this low commodity price, that externality, that externalizing, as the economists call it, all of the costs onto everybody else. And that is what I, the, the flip side of that is true account. And if, if the price of corn on the shelf had to take into account what monocrop farming is doing to the soil, to the environment, to the economy in general, to, to the resource extraction from a mining standpoint, it would be astronomical and nobody could afford corn, I believe. And I think that's true across the board in this system. And it almost every true cost to our environment has been externalized. Um, 
and a true cost accounting. Here, you even talked about people trying to, you know, they're looking at car, the, the true carbon footprint. And you talked about levels one, two, three, and four. And I don't, I don't know where that study comes from, but it's real that the closer you get to the truth, the crazier it gets in terms of what the real costs of what we're doing are. And I look at it myself. I, I'm driving around on rubber tires that are destroying the planet, you know, and I'm, I'm consuming a bunch of diesel. And diesel I'm pickup not, that takes 15, that, that'll only move 15 miles on one gallon of fuel, right? And I'm throwing away this empty plastic container wrapped in a box for the death fluid that I got to in. And I'm saying, okay, I'm saving the particulate matter, but how many of these things am I throwing in the dumpster? <laughs> it's 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 so there's no solutions really there's trade-offs how much pollution did making did extracting the oil and making the plastic jug create how much pollution did the box and the inks and the dyes and the glues that hold the box together how many what's the environmental cost of that and then we've got this five gallons of basically piss water that we're going to dump into our pickup that surprise there's no urea manu there's no liquid urea manufacturers in the united states all the def is imported do you know that i i could have guessed it <laughs> you know i feel like every time you ask me a question of whether we import something i'd have to say probably um, <laughs> i need but, to quit asking trick questions then <laughs> yeah right but at the end of the day uh that the accountability for the true cost accounting is not even, it's not in most of our discussions uh, at a policy level, you know, they're trying to offer solutions, you know, and, and politicians, they get, Sowell talks about this, as Connors was talking about, he's into politics in general, but he talks about how uh, the politicians are the ones that in order to get their jobs, they have to lie to us by offering us solutions that really cannot be implemented without drastic repercussions right and it's just like anything else in the world we start printing money as you talked about in, on this podcast several times for the recovery act and you are going to become inflated in in the world inflation's going to come because you're devaluing um we're increasing the money supply and going to devalue. it's just there are always repercussions now were they worth it maybe i'm not going to say that i know I, I understand that there could have been such drastic problems by not doing things but more often than not, I think any of these policies on my farm, everything I do is better if I don't do it, just like that pasture, right? And so putting in drain tile didn't help. It cost me a bunch of money. Dumping nitrogen on the fields didn't help. It just cost me a bunch of money. And the less I do, the, the, the do-nothing farmer that Masanobu talks about, I think you could apply those principles to our economy and you'd probably end up a lot better off. Oh, but then you'd probably lose a bunch of those bureaucratic jobs. Uh, people studying what they can do to fix something like death fluid. When really we have a problem, but we probably should just quit burning so much fuel in the first place, if I had to guess. Okay, you you open a can of worms that I'm going to go ahead and reach my hand into and throw against the wall and see what happens. <laughs> so back back to Thomas Sowell. And the economy, it is just a trade. Okay. So, what's the basic economy? A human being needs food, water, and air to live. And 
Food we can generally obtain from our natural environment. It takes a little bit of labor and a little bit of creativity. Water's a little bit easier for most people. You know, you can go to a creek, you can go to a stream, and you can drink, you go to a pond and drink. You can't just find food falling off, you know, every tree everywhere unless you know exactly where to look. And that takes knowledge. It takes some skill. So the basic unit of the economy is those that could find the food and bring the food back to the community, they would get a trade. They would get a labor trade or a value trade for the calories that they brought. Okay? And that that's the start of trade, right? I've got apples. I've been living on apples. You've got oranges. Like, you eat oranges all the time. You look at my apples, I go, man, those would be delicious. And I look at my apples, I go, man, an orange would be delicious. Let's make a trade. Let's make a value trade for that. And so we invented this thing called money, currency, greenbacks, dollars, pesos, rubles, cents, whatever the hell you want to call them. Food is energy. Food is life. And to some extent, money is, is just a way to store energy. It, it's, it's a store. It's a way to store energy. It's a way to store food long-term because th that's what really, that's what it really comes down to is the people that can't grow their food thousand years ago when we're all living in tribes and trees thousand years ago, the people that couldn't grow food. Okay. They're in town. They're making the pots. They're weaving the fucking clothes. You know, they're cooking the things they're being, uh, you know, the, the altar boy for the priest, whatever the people that could grow the food or could go out to the forest and get it, you know, they would bring it back. There would be some sort of value exchange. And that's the, to me, that's the basic unit of the economy, right? Food. I give you food. You give me something of, of equivalent value for it. And so every time that we want to quote, grow the economy, we're not actually growing the economic base of fucking anything because we're not producing anything new from a raw material or a raw resource. We're just adding another layer in to an existing system to extract another layer of wealth. Are you following me? Mostly, yeah. So we have these systems, you know, okay, so let's talk farming. So we go back 100 years. Everybody's doing, you know, 100 years ago, everybody was farming with mules, mule teams. Well, what's the next big invention? Tractor. You can have this little itty bitty tractor that takes one guy to run that makes 25 horsepower that replaces your 16 head team of mules and all the feet it takes to run them. Oh, that seems like a good deal. So now we've made that value trade between taking animals as part of a close, as part of a, as part of a cycle, as part of a system. We're taking the animals that added their labor and their biology back to the land in the process of working it to prepare for another crop. We completely remove that and we put a diesel fuel powered tractor out there running on rubber tires, or I mean, if you're really old, a steam tractor on steam, on steam rims, whatever. But we replace that with mechanical horsepower, with industrialized horsepower. Those, those 16 mules aren't peeing and pooping as they're walking across the field anymore. Now I've got a tractor. Now you don't have to have 10 guys to maintain the mule team, maintain the equipment for the mules, 
have a blacksmith on site, have a farrier on site. You don't have to have any of that crap. You just need a part-time mechanic and a parts dealer. So we make a value trade. I mean, we think, okay, that's a good trade. We're saving a lot of labor. We have all these labor-saving appliances, these things that save labor. What if those are all bullshit? What if really the value of this world is the human labor that it takes to produce food? If that's the only thing that has value, or if that's the base unit of value, the human labor and the resources it requires to produce an energy of food. And if we, we correctly account for that energy, whether it's human energy, animal energy, or fossil fuel energy, I think the books are going to start to balance. But I don't think anybody's going to like the math. That part, the, if you were to see true cost accounting, I'm not sure what the ramifications for our lifestyles would be, but they would, there's no question there would be some changes, right? And, and personally, for example, uh, one of the things would be travel. The money that, that the wealthier um, nations spend on travel for leisure probably starts to become untenable. And I really like to travel. So, I mean, these are things that I've been confronting in my own life, in my own accounting, but you're absolutely right about this fundamental equation. Now, I would argue that very quickly after the trade of the energy, we were in human systems. So one of the things, you know, we could talk about shelter and, and what housing means to us, uh, but that relates to the next part, which is to protect this human from those humans who don't want to play by any kind of trade rules and they just want to come kill you, you start relying on the king or the whoever is in charge of the tools and the iron. And now you've added this labor, like the, the beginning of the military industrial complex <laughs> to, to the system. And, and because we're becomes... so busy growing food and taking care of our people that we don't have time to defend ourselves against the guys in the other valley that can't quite grow enough food for themselves that want to come over here and take our shit. So let's all get together. We'll put somebody in charge and they can get a few guys around or strong arm men to help protect us. And we'll just pay them, I don't know, one or 2%. You know, we'll just give them 2% of our crop every year so they can eat and they can feed the army and protect us. And life is good, right? There you go. Now, and that's how that's how it fucking starts again. <laughs> yes. yes, and I argue, uh, you know, there's more way more cans of worms that opens up, but that that today is sort of the reality on the ground of of where we find ourselves just exponentially exploded with that percentage here in the United States, right? Well, what is it? Five, I don't know, five or plus percent of our GDP goes to to military. And probably more when you when you really pin it down, but it is the existence of that protection uh, of our system that is the only real backing behind that money that that system by fiat dates, right? The dollar. To be honest, it's it is only that military might I think that backs it up, um, and, and the rules in that system to protect you from people that would break those rules is is part of that is it flawed is it rife with with uh, deceit and 
and all kinds of people taking advantage of it, of course. But you look at uh, another currency that people really are hyped up about is crypto. Yeah. And what happens when there is no army by fiat to determine the value and to enforce the rules? Well, you get you get some pain. Um, and that would be a whole other conversation one day. But that internalization of the costs, getting back to that energy exchange and some amount of system to protect it, it's where we are. But trying to figure out how that relates to the future, because I mean, what is this is a temporal issue we're talking about. And we are externalizing most of our costs onto the future, really. Yes, there are pollution problems, for example, but it's it's the cost to my kids' generation and my grandchildren that don't exist that really, it's just my sod farming was. We were taking and extracting energy, literal energy, out of the soil for today's profits to, to, to in this case, a lot of those profits were going to help poor people in Mexico, okay? So altruism doesn't make it okay that you were extracting it, but it it's kind of, it makes it an interesting equation. Um, but it's just like that in our bigger economy, all of agriculture. We are extracting from historically what was put in there by the biological systems, by creation, and we're extracting it for today's profits at the expense of tomorrow. And whether you and I are around to, we, we may be, I mean, that's, everybody, you, you tend to, you tend to be a little pessimistic uh, on a more short term than some people. And I, I can't say I disagree with that, but that externalizing of costs and dumping them on the future is really what the whole thing's about. That energy exchange has become falsified and the massive economy that this world puts together if we don't try to stop it like I did, stop doing all of the harm first, let nature and the, the the only perpetual, at least on the scale that we're talking about, source of this energy is the sun. And there's only one way to convert that into our life, and that's through photosynthesis. And, and I don't care what science says they're going to make it up. It's just not a thing. Anytime you've seen MIT try to put plants in a box, uh, it it doesn't actually work, you know? I mean, that that's just a fact. It's like it's like anything else we talked about earlier. So yeah, those things, Brian, they're, they're big parts that are just uh, the bigger outcrop of what I did on my little micro scale on my tiny farm. And to try to come to a true cost accounting, even on my farm is a super struggle right now to make sure that I can afford the ridiculous land costs and if the interest rates are my interest rates variable on my land note, I, I'm I, <laughs> I am terrified. I mean, I'm, it could destroy me. I'm going to have to start extracting more more money just to survive. So these are all real things in our economy uh, that you and I are talking about. It's going to have to come to the same the same moment uh, of accountability. And I don't know how painful that's going to be. And I we're at a strange spot because. Okay, we have this we have this weird intersection between an entire generation of farmers and ranchers aging out, an entire generation wanting to get in, not having the capital to do it, the generation wanting to get out, they can't give it away, but on the same token, you can't take it with you. 
So you got to do something with it before you die or do you? I mean, I guess everybody has to answer these questions for themselves. But so we have a generation with very little money that wants the land that an old generation with assets has, but they don't have a way to get it. And the energy required to continue farming and ranching the way we've been doing it since the 50s and 60s, the energy's still there. It's just too expensive. It's going to be too expensive. Uh, Long-time listeners of the podcast might remember an uh, episode we did with David Pratt. And if I was, you know, a halfway decent podcaster, like, you know, that Clay Connery guy, I'd tell you the episode right off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't have it. It was probably single digits. It was pretty early on. Um, but I think in that conversation, I said something about $6 diesel fuel. And Dave Pratt turned that around and challenged. He said, no, the true cost should be closer to $20. That's the price you need to look at. If you can't make your operation work with $20 diesel fuel, you need to figure it out now and make some changes. Okay, that's a light bulb. And I I've and I've always tried to to reduce my fuel usage as much as possible. So what I'm getting at is like we're at this nexus and I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like my my crystal ball is way too cloudy. We've got too many people that want to eat, that are demanding cheap food, and the cheap food system is starting to crack and collapse. If, if we want to double down and continue to go down this route of chemical production agriculture and ignoring our soils, ignoring actual animal welfare in a feedlot, I mean, if somebody can come out here and look me dead in the eye and tell me that an animal the day before that a feedlot steer before it goes to the processor is healthy and happy. I'm going to have an awful hard time with that. I'm going to have an awful hard time with, you know, basically, uh, you know, I've, I've never spent any time in jail, but I imagine that's what it's like mentality wise for the cattle when they're in a feedlot, they're basically in prison, in confinement, in general population, and they get fed a ration three squares a day. I, I can imagine that that's kind of kind of what that's like. I can't imagine that that's a healthy life for those animals. And we deserve, like, morally, those animals deserve better than to be standing ankle deep in their own shit and choking on fecal dust. Like, we, they deserve better than that. And but how the, are you going to feed the planet, Brian? Uh, that regenerative agriculture crap can't feed the planet. Look, it's not an overnight easy transition, okay? And th there are some issues. You know, we can talk we can talk all we want about grass-fed beef. And yes, grass-fed beef is the is is the fastest growing market segment in the beef industry and has been for 5 years running with over 10% growth per year. I mean, we've, we've doubled the grass-fed beef market in the last four years, and we're going to double it again probably another three or four. And it's not just grass-fed beef. I mean, it's pasture-raised, pasture-finished, you know, sperm-to-steak producers like yourself, like I'm trying to be, where we want, we want the whole cycle on the ranch, and we want to show people what kind of care we're taking of the land. 
and how good our birds are, how good our insects are. That's what we want to do. Now, I've got neighbors that are in cow-calf. They take, they take okay care of the land. Most of them are tenants. And, you know, like when you're running Rivendell for the doctors that were in, you know, that were down in Mexico, your job as manager, run that place for profit because they want profit. They need money to make their, they need money to make their dreams work. There's nothing wrong with that. It's their land. They're entitled to run it however they want. But you and your heart knew that over time that pouring all the chemicals year after year and doing the same thing over and over, you're watching that land degrade, but you couldn't tell them that because they wouldn't believe you. They didn't believe you as long as, as long as the inputs continued to give the appearance of working. It wasn't until total system failure that they were willing to acknowledge that there might've been a problem. Do I have that right? Yeah. And in fact, the doctor, I mean, brilliant guy, he came to me during one of those tough years and said, oh, the solution is Roundup Ready bluegrass. That, that will fix your farm. And I had already knew that there, there was no answer there, but I couldn't, I couldn't say, well, no way, but I did say they're never going to let that happen, which honestly, thank God the, the government has not allowed that to happen. Um, you know, wheat was as far as they were trying to go, and that even got out of the bag a little. But yes, that was the scenario. And the sustainability, you know, you hear people griping about the word sustainable. I recognize that the words we use are important, but the sustainable word is fine to me. Uh, you know, and you'll say, why sustain a degraded thing? You're not. If it's truly sustainable, it's not degraded. It is, in fact, regenerating. Um, whatever. So the bottom line is it was not sustainable. And I'm fine using that word because just what you're saying, it was going a direction. And, and again, it tied into we were stealing from the future potential protection of that land for today's dollars. And those are very discounted, right? That is a, that is a huge discount you're taking on that value. It's a, it's a time value thing. Maybe where today we need that money because otherwise we won't survive. So I recognize there may be some part of that, but there is a there is an interest on the other side. There is an exponential decay on the other side that it's going to cost us huge. Uh, so it, it's like you were having a conversation with Mary Jo the other day, and and it was like investment. It was this playing with money about where you're going to to borrow money from and where you're going to put it. And if you're making a half percent over here and you're borrowing at four and a half percent here, maybe that makes sense, but not forever. Right. And she wouldn't say it either, but the point was the differential and the way the system works is just the way that the ecology works. Uh, you're going to get less interest on today's dollars than the system's going to take from you in tomorrow's dollars. And um, so that, that again, just ties back to real cost accounting. That, that decision to take money out in SOD, I couldn't even put a number on where it is today in terms of how, you know, how my land very much of which still needs a lot of work, right? I mean, we're we're not out of the woods. That beautiful piece of pasture you can see on my website is a pretty small percentage, right? That's that's seven acres uh, of 180 that I got to fix. I'm I'm really going to screw you up now. Okay, we we're talking mm -hmm. about true cost accounting, and we we've, we've talked about 
like cost of farming, externalizing cost of, you know, all the pesticides and antibiotic use. So here's a good one. Um, I move a little bit of dirt every once in a while. So let's just say um, I know where there's a place not too far away from my ranch that there's a guy that will sell you topsoil. He will sell you topsoil for $20 a ton. It's not bad, right? That's a pretty decent price on topsoil. Now let's talk about the just your circle of alpha, just your circle that you're growing sod on. How many tons of soil do you think you're taking off that sucker every year? Well, each pallet is roughly a ton. Now there's quite a bit of water weight, I suppose, but not water and plant mass. Yeah. Yeah. But, but literally every pallet. And so, uh, say, say I get 20 acres in a year off of that. Well, uh, that's 2000 tons, right? Okay. So, and, and yes, it's real soil. And, and I, I used to say, because where that sod is going, it's going to people's disturbed landscapes around their newly built house, largely, right? Um, and, and I look at it sort of related to skin grafts and a burn victim, okay? So their land is scarred. I've got this growing skin on my farm, and we peel it up, and we send it over, and I heal their land, kind of. I put green growing grass on it off of my land and and brian you know where they tend to take skin grafts from right uh it's your legs ass cheek. or your ash cheek yeah so i'm roughly the valley's ass cheek is what i've always said when it comes to to land growing uh but at the end of the day that was a it was a justification but that is exactly what was happening i was hauling soil and living tissue off of my my land and then having to regrow it uh, using synthetic external inputs. Um, the reality is, of course, too, that if you look at uh, even today when it was hay, so for the, then it was for, for 10 years, it was hay going off my farm, which I've also put an end to because the hay wasn't soil, but it really was. I was it's exporting, it's, it's exporting carbon and nutrients and all the things uh, that that magic of photosynthesis is producing and it's going away. Now, though, like you, I am, I put a stop to that. And this year, anything I had to feed, which was right at the end, I brought in a few bales uh, off farm. So I'm, I'm bringing them in, but I'm also, I realize from a, from an ethical standpoint, anybody sells me, Hey, I am also taking nutrients from their land. Your neighbor that's selling his $20 a ton soil, you're degrading something by taking that. Right. Uh, And I struggle with that. So if I can get, you know, old Jim Garrish, uh, his kick in the hay habit deal, I'm trying to think about it deeply on a system-wide level. If you could not do either, that is really what renourishes and regenerates your land. And the only thing I'm exporting is beef. And that's the plan. I don't know, but. I like it. So I brought up the cost of dirt and I was kind of quizzing you about, uh, about your sod. So to put it in perspective, and I'll, I'll just, I'll talk about like a, a typical wheat farm here in Kansas, okay, where we're going to be fallow for basically just three, maybe four months during the summer, because, you know, that crop is, it goes in September, October, 
usually has sprouted well up by now three four inches but it's uh you know we barely got about an inch of wheat um because of lack of moisture so we look at it i look at a field like that and the data that i've come across seems to indicate that in my area a field under basically normal the normal tillage practices for this area that that field is going to lose something about five tons maybe 10 tons of topsoil per acre per year Okay, five tons of topsoil per acre. It sounds like it's literally nothing, and it kind of almost is. Five tons of topsoil per acre is about the sheet is about as thick as a sheet of paper. The thickness of a sheet of paper, you and I can't tell that in a year. Over a couple decades, maybe we might be able to yeah. see that. But at, at humans, we have this problem. Our like our temporal sense of memory is AFU. Like we don't we can't remember what it looked like 20 years ago that it didn't have erosion ruts that, you know, this field was level with that road ditch over there and it wasn't three feet lower. Like we, we don't remember that crap, but what I'm getting at is, you know, like the whole externalizing future costs or externalizing future debt. I don't know. There's a good term there. I'll have to come up with, um, I don't think that there's a commodity farmer in this country that would be in business next year if they had to rebuy all the dirt that washed off their farm. I don't think anyone of anybody would survive. And I would, if you think that, if you think that there's a corn, wheat, cotton, or soybean farmer in the world, that can afford to lose a hundred dollars an acre of soil washing off their field every year. You're fucking delusional. Like, how do we how do we go to Indiana and Illinois and Iowa and buy land for thirty thousand dollars an acre and let five tons an acre wash off of it down the Mississippi River every year? Like. How, do, how does this make sense? The only way it makes sense is if the system is completely broken and fraudulent and 100% reliant on taxpayer subsidies to power the system and keep it going. Yes, I agree, Ryan. I mean, and I all I could say is that you and I can talk about it. We could do what we can on our, our place to recognize our role in it, to minimize it, and then the next part is that community. I don't want to attack people, right? I mean, this is this is where it gets a little, there's a tendency, I told you to quit, to not criticize folks in industry because we're together in this. Right. Well, I need, I need to try to convince as many people not to do what I did, right? Now, I have to take accountability for what I did uh, to, to this piece of ground that I'm now stewarding, but there's lots of it out there and the consumer, we talk about trying to convince them. I, I don't know, but that community, all we could do is try to communicate it. And then I need to be able to say, my both of my grandfathers ran feedlots. That that is what they did, right? Mike Calicrate knew both of them. Um, and I remember my grandfather telling me that that smell that I would complain about was the smell of money, right? And and it was really the smell of ammonia. Uh, and concentrated effluent that had to be moved. But at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to say that my grandfather was necessarily, a, he wasn't 
even wrong for his decisions. But I think looking back, we can say this decidedly. We made poor decisions and we're still going down that road. I want to be able to say that without personally attacking these folks because I don't believe um, Mike Calicrate, for example, he's still in a feed yard situation. I don't think I I would love it if he became Gabe Brown, uh, you know, because he's bright and he's so aggressive. Um, But I can't, people are, we have to meet them where they're at and we have to recognize that you can't, like you said, transition overnight, but I need to have the freedom to speak up and say, I don't believe in ethanol subsidies. I, I don't believe that taxpayers should still be footing the bill for all of this antibiotic use when it really turns around and causes all these problems down the road. It is We need to start doing what we can on those externalized costs, re-internalize them, and then they can't afford to do it anymore. We can't change the feedlot commodity system because politicians make, you know, on one side, they're making way too much money getting kickbacks from Cargill and JBS, and Tyson and Archer Daniels Midland and John Deere and Monsanto and Dow and Cygena. And then we definitely can't have anything about eating better or eating higher quality food and eating less ultra processed junk because that takes profits out of all the multinational food corporations. We can't tell people to eat better because it's better for human health. We can't, you know, get rid of glyphosate because it disrupts gut microbiome because of all the companies that everybody, that all our politicians are invested in will lose profits all the way down the line. We can't actually address underlying causes of things that are wrong with human health because the way to address that is by eating better goddamn food. And if we ate better food, all these other externalized inputs and ultra-processed food manufacturers would go away. Oh, yeah, so what's your food ate? David Montgomery uh, and Ann Bilkey, those, those two came up. They just wrote that book. Uh, I have it, and I'm, it is, it's super important for that thing, what's your food ate? He's the guy that wrote Dirt, you know, uh, how a civilization fell apart, which was super instrumental just in, like, background. And then Nicolette Hahn Nyman, and her defending beef. That is a book that, you know, I even gave it away off of my meat table uh, at the show. But the beef she's defending is not the foods that, you're, that, we're, that we're complaining about, right? And if you if you look at those two books uh, and, and the underlying structure, it's showing, it's exposing what we can't talk about. But if we don't talk about it, I don't know, maybe Ukraine is gonna cause, is gonna cause some awakening, just like COVID, I don't know. Ryan, I don't know what's going to make people wake up. <laughs> and so I know that it took me a long time. My brain was so stuck in that reductive, commoditized thing that it it had to change, you know? And Will Harris down there at White Oak Pastures, he started changing because he was belligerent about his own things, right? And I love yeah. listening to him talk about it. Um, but how how if, if it took me that long seeking Somebody who's not seeking, it may take longer, but I can't stop saying it. I'm not going to, for the for the sake of peace and harmony at a Rocky Mountain Farmers Union event, I'm not going to hold my tongue and say that we have to agree with the way the system is. I just can't do it. So, Not being able to hold my tongue is the reason that I don't walk into certain rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some organizations, when I get their uh, membership solicitations in the mail, don't even get open. They go right in the garbage. And I don't care when your annual meeting is, because if I come there, I'm just, I'm going to feel like a turd and a honey. 
turd in a honey dish and I'm probably going to make it stink for everybody. I think you're just, your show helps to spread the stink that actually is some kind of fixing. I mean, that's all we can do. If we don't raise the stink and we're not going to fix anything or slow down the crash. I mean, I'm not sure we could fix it, but we, we may as a, as a big group, those guys, the Gabe Browns of the earth, the Joel, Joel Salatin that you're going to have on, they're making an outsized impact, right? And they're not perfect people. I'm not trying to hold them up on any pedestal. Fred, it's a little tough to not say he's pretty great. <laughs> Everybody likes him. So, but he's also one of the humblest guys on earth. Uh, but all of the guys, if I can just help in any way, like you are magnify their voice, um, there's got to be some benefit, right? I, I don't know what else, but I'm, I think that's what you're doing. And I'm really, that's why I support what you do too. Well, I, I appreciate that, Jared. And, you know, I, I'm not the only voice in regenerative ag. I'm probably, I hope I'm not the best one. I mean, if I am the best spokesman we've got, we're in trouble. <laughs> uh, but it, it does, it takes all kind of folk and yeah. I, I try to be hopeful. I try to be hopeful about the future and, you know, call it what you will, whether it's, you know, doom and gloom or tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists, the system's crashing. Like the, the, the greater system is crashing. The, the quote, the order of society is changing and it's going to change dramatically and irrevocably and it's going to change in ways that we're not going to see coming and all i can do is is i can i can sit here on the ranch sit here in my studio and i can see problems in the system i can see things that are going to blow up in locations and we just have to do our best to position ourselves and our operations and our families in a place where we can come through the, the coming societal disruptions and how far out is the crash? I don't know. I, I hope that it's kind of like a midterm fast crash because it still gives me some time to prepare and a fast crash is better in the long run than a long, slow crash. The worst thing that could happen is we just kind of stay on the trajectory we're on and we're on just this, this, this slow crash where people are trying everything they can to, to keep propping the existing system up and nobody realizes that it's actually crashing until it's too late. I think that's where we are. I think we're, I think we're heading for a, a, a slow crash that's going to be worse in the long term than a hard, fast one would be. When is that coming? Um, well, if there is a fast crash coming, I hope it's still a few more months down the line because I don't have everything <laughs> in place that I need to have in place. That being said, you know, like the, the established order is changing. The established order of agriculture is changing of food production, of manufacturing, of distribution. Everything's changing. And it, it's, it's going to be a while before it, gets better i think so yeah and as a as a monolith you're probably right i just hope that little bits and pieces uh 
can be healthy enough, like you said, to, to weather whatever it is better, you know, cushioned, restrained, whatever the term would be. So I, we'll, it's building a local culture right. that's resilient and that takes yeah. care of itself and is less reliant on outside inputs. The more localized you can get your resource base or your, your community area, I think the better off people are going to be transitioning through the future. Um, I agree. I, I think if you're stuck in New York, it's probably not great. And you should definitely think about not being there and being somewhere where it's a lot less populous, where maybe you have at least access to more than a poster stamp of land where you could grow a tomato. Cause that's going to get pretty important. I think. So, well, we'll do what we can Brian. keep after it. We've been at this for just a little over two hours. I probably need to get on with oh, my geez. day and I'm sure you do too. <laughs> So you got anything you yeah, want to close with? No, I appreciate you inviting me on. Um, and I, you know, I would hope that my story, um, you know, honestly, of just accepting responsibility for what it is, maybe it helps somebody who's sitting there right now, not realizing uh, what they're getting themselves into, but also just re there are resources out there all those people I mentioned, and there's many more, right. That super influenced me. Uh, and it took a lot of doing, but now I feel like, you know, even, even if I can't sustain the financial crash that's coming, you know, uh, because of just where I find myself in debt and I'm not, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. There's no question, right. There's, I've found now in, as a, as a life goal, whether it's, cattle on ground but the system the ecological system you can get there um and you can see results and my god is it fulfilling so if i can help anybody else do that i'm i'm open to it i guess here's the closing thought it seems like you've discovered that you have a passion and a drive to regenerate land and you're willing to pursue that at large cost at large personal cost and financial cost to put that value back in let's just say the bank account of the soil and i appreciate that i really do and i can kind of see some parallels with you know what i've done here on the ranch um i don't have the number in front of me but it's it's well into six figures of the amount of money that i've spent in the last 12 years, clearing cedar trees and cleaning up canyons and opening up drainages. What has that given me back in actual production value? What has that added to the bottom line? It's extremely difficult to quantify what, what two gallons a minute running down a creek is. It's difficult to quantify that. It's difficult to quantify what a set of beaver dams is. It's difficult to quantify those things in terms of production. But I can look at that and go, man, that sure is a cool beaver pond. Man, this creek sure does have a lot of water in it for not having an inch of rain within the last 100 days and being at the end of you know, 24, 24 of the most consecutive driest months that we've ever been on, ever been on record in this part of the world. My big, my main creek on half of the ranch has more water in it than it did two years ago because I've got beavers. Let's put a dollar value on that. 
can't. And I think that there's a lot of these, uh, for lack of a better term, ecological goods and services that land stewards provide at zero benefit to them or at cost to them to the greater benefit of the world. You know? Amen, Brian. I think that's a good place to leave it. Where can we find you on social media, Jared? If anybody wants to uh, reach out, get a hold of you, tell you you're wrong. Well, if they want to tell you you're wrong, they'll, I'll filter. They can filter that through me. But uh, if they can, if they want to get a hold of you, how do they get? It? How do they find you? Hey, I'll take it. And I love the conversation. You know, I am not bait, Brian. I'm working on it. I've been convinced by the Seven Sons Grace Cart guys that I've got to get on the Instagram. And so I'm there uh, at Plus Lazy K. Plus Lazy K is my my grandfather's brand uh that is now my brand and and on my cattle uh pluskk.com is the website for the beef operation and then there's rivendellfarms.co uh which is the the collaborative farming at multi-enterprise thing we're trying to build in order to to keep on this land and uh, i will try i'm not going to tiktok with you brian I haven't, you know, even, I haven't even posted on there in three, four weeks. I've, I've been trying to stay the hell off of that thing for a little while. I just out of principle that that bite dance company and, and the Chinese influence. I just can't go there. I'm not saying that Instagram, whoever these people are meta, but it, at least they're, they're under think, a different banner. So I don't think Zuckerberg's going to do anything less evil with your data than bite dance is. Probably, probably not, uh, but he's probably not as interested in, in suppressing his own people. Maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, it's one of those things that that's where I'm at. I'll, I will start posting. You'll actually see me. You convinced me to do a selfie video, and I did one on Instagram. Can't believe I did that. It's not me, but it's part of the change. I've got to at least make myself vulnerable and reach out, and my farm is going to do, and if anybody wants to be involved, we are still going to keep trying to build on my land base a multi-diverse enterprise collaborative farm effort. And I'm working towards it, you know, and I hope that uh, Audubon helps me and maybe Ecdysis folks, whatever. Uh, and and I'd love to have you come visit. And uh, it's not like your place, <laughs> but it's, it's land-based. And I think we got the same spirit about it. So... Thanks again, Brian. Well, thanks for the invite. And I, you invited me out last summer and I couldn't make it work. Um, I'm going to try to get out there. I, Colorado, Colorado do be awful pretty. <laughs> Especially in the summertime, buddy. Well, all right. I think uh, we need to get out of here. So, um, yeah, okay. we're just going to let you go. Enjoy the rest of your week, gang. Thank you, Brian. It's good talk to you.